Well, good morning again, and uh, I'm excited to jump into the book of Hebrews with you this morning as we get to start a new series. But before we do, I just had to share something with you. How appropriate the Word of God is for whatever circumstance we might be in. I just have to tell you, this morning I decided to read a little bit in the book of Ezekiel, and uh, was in Ezekiel, uh, first few chapters of Ezekiel. But Ezekiel chapter 3, I read this verse, and I thought it's too good not to share. It says in Ezekiel 3 verse 24, Then the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. He spoke to me and said, okay, what was this message from the Spirit? He spoke to me and said, go shut yourself inside your house. Now, how appropriate can you get more than that? It's just amazing to me. You never know what you're going to find in the Word of God and how it might just apply. Of course, a little different context there, but we can relate to that verse, I think, uh, in our, our day that we're in. But today is all about Hebrews. I want to jump into this, what I believe is one of the richest books in the New Testament. And the reason for that is because the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers, to Hebrews, to help tie the Old Testament and all that happened before the coming of Christ to help tie that to Christ and what we believe as followers of Jesus. And so there's a richness to our faith that quite honestly most of us probably don't have a full appreciation for. Uh, most of you who are listening or watching right now probably don't consider yourselves to be Old Testament scholars, and I don't either. Uh, most of us don't have that background of growing up with that being our primary thing that we understand. And so Hebrews was written by somebody who obviously did have that type of a background, uh, which, by the way, little aside here, we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. For a long time, this was called Paul's letter to the Hebrews. And so the assumption was that Paul wrote this letter. But then, uh, after many years, uh, Martin Luther, for example, early 1500s, began to question that a little bit. And some reasons for that are because he doesn't identify himself as the author of the letter, which he does in his other letters. The style's a little bit different. Grammar's a little bit different. Uh, and so some suggestions were made of potentially some other authors. Maybe Barnabas was who Luther suggested. Apollos has been somebody else that's been suggested. Either way, all that to say, we don't know exactly who wrote it. It really doesn't matter. What we do know is that the book of Hebrews is universally accepted as an authentic book of the New Testament. It's, it is part of our, our New Testament scripture. Um, but this book was written by somebody with a significant background in the Jewish faith, and they were helping tie together uh, those pieces of the, of the Old Testament, the theology of the Old Testament to who Jesus is. So if you've ever read, if you ever struggled a little bit with the Old Testament, you ever read something and thought, I, this doesn't seem to fit. In fact, it maybe almost seems opposite from what I see in the person of Jesus or what I see revealed in the New Testament. And if ever we think that way, that's an indication that we really don't understand fully what we're reading in the Old Testament because we know that God doesn't contradict himself. And we know that Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so Hebrews is about helping us understand how Jesus, our Messiah, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And so hopefully it'll shed some light uh, on some of our understanding of the Old Testament as we dig into it. Now, some of you that are really into that kind of stuff, really into the, the theology and into the details, are starting to nerd out right now. You're getting really excited about this. And others of you, maybe you're starting to check out, and you're thinking, I might go to the kitchen right now, go grab me a little snack. Don't do that, okay? Don't tune out either physically or mentally. 
hang with me because the other thing I love about this book is that not only is it a rich theological book, but there's so much practical application there. And this is the way it's supposed to work. You know, the theology is the foundation upon which we can build, but we it's not enough. Uh, you don't just put a foundation down and not build on top of it. We build on that solid theology to build a structure that helps us to learn how do we live out our faith day to day. And so we'll get there as we continue on in the book of Hebrews. But let's just jump in right now with the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now let's stop there for a moment and we'll come back and read the rest of the chapter here in just a little bit. Uh, but I love this. I love Hebrews chapter 1 because this whole chapter is about Jesus. It's about this, this wonderful name that we were able to sing about a moment ago and just how incredible Jesus is, how Jesus is exalted higher than anyone or anything else. That's really what Hebrews chapter 1 is all about. And I love this because it gives us an opportunity to brag on Jesus. It gives us an opportunity to appreciate who He is. And you know, we enjoy bragging on those we love, don't we? When we are proud of someone, maybe in the right context, we don't want to be too obnoxious about it, but we enjoy bragging on those that we love. Parents, don't you love bragging on your kids? Don't you love telling somebody something special that happened or something special that they did or who they are and what you love about them? Grandparents, we know you love bragging on your grandkids. And, and kids, at least when they're younger... They love to brag on their parents. They like to talk about how amazing their parents are. And then they hit the teenage years. And Taylor, you got to straighten them out for us so that they start bragging on their parents just a little bit more. But no, that's, things shift a little bit, right? But they, they're, they're quick to brag on their friends or on a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We love to brag on those that, that we hold in highest regard, don't we? And so I love that about Hebrews 1. Because it gives us a chance to lift up the name of Jesus. And there's so many uh, reasons to do that. And there's so much good content here that I want us to jump into. We're going we're gonna to look today at really two main ideas. And I'm going to spend the majority of our time on the second one. But the first one is important to talk about again. So let me just read one more time the first couple of verses. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God spoke to their ancestors, talking about the, the Hebrew people here. This is the Jewish people. God spoke through the prophets. But now it says God has spoken through his son. The, the way he did it, I, I love the way it's described, the way he spoke to the prophets. It says at many times and in various ways. God used many different people. There were many different mouthpieces, many different prophets. He used a lot of different creative methods to communicate through his people. That's one of the things when you read through the books of the prophets, you find there's some weird stuff that they were doing sometimes that God was very creative in communicating. In fact, I mentioned uh, one of the reasons that I started reading in Ezekiel again today is because I knew that I was going to quote some from Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 4 today, but in Ezekiel 4, God tells him 
to, uh, to build. He get, tells him to get some clay. I guess that was, you know, a version of Plato back then. But get some clay and to build the city of Jerusalem. And then he says, and then lay siege to it. And which is just, I don't know if it's just me, that, that kind of, you know, I picture like a grown-up playing with G.I. Joe things or something. But he's laying siege to the city. But this was serious stuff at the time. And so he's, he's giving a symbol of what God is doing. But then he tells him to do this. He says, I want you to lie on your side for the number of days, each day to represent one of the years that my people were rebellious. So for the people of Israel, he has to lie on his side for 390 days straight to represent the 390 years of rebellion. Then he gets to flip over to his other side and he spends 40 days to represent the 40 years of Judah that they were rebellious. Now that's bad enough right there. But then you get a little bit further into chapter 4 and it tells about what he is to cook for himself. By the way, if anybody's ever had Ezekiel bread, which I just discovered that not too long ago, it's pretty good stuff, by the way. But Ezekiel bread is based on Ezekiel chapter 4. He tells him to bake bread. Here's the problem. You remember what he told him to use for fuel to bake his bread? Human excrement. So God is, is teaching a lesson about impurity and the impurity of his people. And he has his prophet cook his meal over his own poop. That, that's, that's creative communication right there, I would say. I am very thankful, as I've said many times before, that, that I haven't been asked as a communicator of God's word to do something like that. And hopefully that won't happen. But, but God can, create, can, can creatively communicate and, and does so. But now it says that was in the past. That was through the prophets in, in, in various times and various ways through different people. Now his communication comes through one person and it's through Christ. And you see, Christ now has the final word. He is the final authority. So when Christ speaks, that, that's the end of that. That is the fulfillment of whatever it is that he's speaking about. And there are certain things in the Old Testament that Jesus speaks about and, and then gives a, a new light on that and, and, and helps us understand ultimately the intent behind it and, and how it's fulfilled in him. Let me give you an example from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does this several times in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard that it was said or it was written, but I tell you. Matthew 5, verse 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. See, Jesus is fulfilling this and saying, let me tell you where ultimately this was headed. And so he becomes the final word and the final authority on everything. And, and so Jesus is the way that God speaks to us. We have to run everything through the filter of who Christ is and what Christ has revealed to us. That's the first thing, is that God speaks to us today through Christ. But... The, the question then should be asked, okay, why? What gives Jesus the authority? Why, why is Jesus the final authority for God to speak to us? And here's the second main idea is that Jesus is superior to everything and everyone else. That's why. Look at verse 4 again. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. See, Jesus is superior for, for several reasons. In fact, let's continue reading on. We've we, we got enough really in the first four verses to carry us for a little while, but there's some more good stuff there in verse 5 and following. It says, starting in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I've become your father? 
Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. We'll come back to that verse in a minute. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So you see from from this whole chapter, this idea that Jesus is exalted and is higher and superior to anyone or anything else. Now let's talk about why. Several reasons why, several things that it says in this passage, but we're just going to fire the big gun first. Here's the big gun. It's that Jesus himself is one with God. That's why Jesus is superior, because we see in verse 3 and in the other verses that we read that he's one with God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Let's talk about both of those ideas, the radiance of God's glory. That word radiance is a compound word in the Greek. It starts with uh, with a beginning phrase that means to intensify whatever is going to follow after that. The word that follows that is the word to shine. And so the idea here is that Jesus shines the glory of God to an intensity that that is far beyond anything else. Think about, for example, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him, the the transfiguration, we call it. And the Bible tells us that that Jesus began to, that his face shone and that his his clothes turned as white uh, as light. And we see this glory of God radiating out of Jesus and and who he was. Now, this is important. It was different from what we we see in Moses, what was recorded with Moses in the Old Testament. Moses, when he would meet face to face with God, the glory of God would still shine on his face. It would be reflected on his face. And so Moses would wear a veil uh, to kind of cover over that. This is different because Moses was just reflecting the glory of God. Jesus is radiating the glory of God from within because he is one with God. Because he is God. And as a result, he was able to do that. The second thing that that it says there is that he is the exact representation of God. That's a Greek word character, which you can probably figure out. We get our word character. If you think about writing down something, leaving an exact representation, that is a character. I brought with me a little something to have a little fun and a little visual today. This is an embosser. This was the uh, first gift that I got when I was finishing up my doctorate from my sweet wife. And so uh, it's something that I could use to, uh, to mark my books if I want to loan them out. But the way this works is there are several characters inside this little embosser here. And if you put it on a piece of paper, and I'll show you what it looks like in a minute, but you press it down. This is literally what that word means. It was talking about a tool that would press and leave a mark. Then you see on the, on the other side of it, how it leaves exactly what was in there before. It is an exact representation of 
that, that character that, that we use. And in the same way, Jesus is an exact representation of God and who God is. He is one with God. Not that he just shows some of who God is, but he is that exact representation of God. Now, in a lot of translations in verse 3, it talks about him being an exact representation. And then it uses the phrase of his essence or of his nature. And those words are important if you know something about church history because in church history, uh, early 4th century, there, there was a big controversy about the essence or nature of Christ. And this is important for us to understand a little bit of, of what they argued over and the decision that they came to. Let me introduce you to a man named Arius. He was a presbyter in Alexandria, Egypt at the turn of the 4th century. He was highly educated. He was highly influential. And he began to teach that Jesus was not of the same essence or not of the same nature as God. That there was something divine about Jesus, but he was lower than truly being on on the level of of who God is. And one of the things that he did is he created a little song, and this doesn't sound like a very exciting song to me, but maybe he had a catchy tune that went with it, but his little song said this. He said, there was a time when he, talking about Christ, was not. There was a time when he was not. Now, I won't try to guess what the tune was or sing it for you because that wouldn't be good. But his point was that that he believed that Jesus was created like another created being. He wasn't God eternal uh, as we now know him to be. And so this became so widespread that one of the church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, said that you couldn't even go to the market without getting into an argument with the merchants in the market about the essence and nature of Christ. And so it was a big deal. Constantine was the emperor at that time. He called for a council to come together. They met in a place called Nicaea. It's the Council of Nicaea 325. And they met to to decide, because this was becoming very divisive, they met to make a decision, what is the official position of the church on the nature of Christ? And standing against Arius in his teaching was a guy not by the name of Athanasius. He argued for the full divinity of Jesus based on his understanding of salvation. Now here was his argument in essence. Salvation is partaking in the nature of God. Therefore... The only one who could grant that type of salvation must be God himself. And so for us to find our salvation in Christ, it's necessary for Christ to be of the nature of God, be in essence the same as God. And he's right. The church um, agreed with this and came to this conclusion. In fact, I want you to listen to how strongly they worded their decision. It says, but to those who say, once he was not or that he was not before his generation, or he came to be out of nothing, or who assert that he, the Son of God, is of a different hypostasis or usia, meaning nature, or that he is a creature, or changeable, or mutable, the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. Now that's a strong statement there about the importance of understanding the nature of Christ and who he is. And by the way, if you wonder why does that matter? Because if Jesus was just a created being, if he just became somewhat divine, what's to stop God from doing that again? What's to stop somebody else? And that's the rabbit trail, by the way. You go down with Mormonism and some other heretical teachings is that that you could eventually become divine or you could eventually God could choose that. And so it's important that we understand the nature of Christ. So 
What evidence is there then? That's a bold claim to say that Jesus is one with God. Let me give you a few things to consider uh, just as, as a way of, of providing some support to that belief. Now granted, a lot of what I want to share with you here comes from Scripture. Somebody might say, well, I don't believe the Bible to begin with, okay? We don't have time to go into a lengthy discourse right now on why the Bible is reliable and why it is. And we could talk about that at another time. Uh, but granted, a lot of what we know about Christ comes through uh, the, the record of Scripture. But here are some things that, that we do know that point to the fact that Jesus is one with God. His own teaching pointed to this. Jesus taught about it himself. Take, for example, John 10, verse 30. Where Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, if you wonder how that was understood, keep reading in verse 31 where it says, The Jews again carried stones in order that they might stone him. Why were they going to stone him? Read ahead verse 33 and we'll find out. They were stoning him, it says, because he had spoken blasphemy and made himself God. They understood what he was saying when he said, I and the Father are one. And here's the thing. Jesus never backed down from that claim, and he never said that they misunderstood him. Jesus lamented the fact that they did not believe him, but he never lamented being misunderstood. They understood clearly what he was saying. Jesus taught it himself. Here's another reason for us to point to the fact that Jesus was one with God, and that was his ability to perform miracles. Now again, granted, there are people in the Bible, there are others that could perform miracles, but Jesus did this out of His own authority. He was able to perform miracles like helping the, the lame walk, giving sight to the blind, even raising the dead. Even exercising authority over nature. You remember when Jesus was in the boat with His disciples and the storm threatened to, to capsize the boat and Jesus stood up and He said, Peace, be still, and all of a sudden just everything went calm. Only God could do that. And so his miracles pointed to who he was. Um, the, the fact that Jesus exercised functions that belonged wholly to God. Let me give you an example. Forgiving sins. You recall the paralytic that was brought to Jesus by some friends for Jesus to heal him. Before Jesus did anything to heal him physically, and he did heal him physically, the first thing he did was he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, those that heard that reacted uh, by saying he's spoken blasphemy. He's, he's claiming to be God because only God has the authority to forgive sins. And they were exactly right. Not about the blasphemy part, but they were exactly right that by saying, I, I forgive your sins, that was a claim to be one with God. And we could talk about other things that point to, this, to, to the evidence of the fact that Jesus is one with God. But I'll just end with one. We're only a week past our celebration of, of Resurrection Day. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the ultimate proof that Jesus was one with God. The fact that He came back to life from the dead. John chapter 10, starting in verse 17, it says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Now listen to this next sentence. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So Jesus had this authority 
because of who he was and, and his oneness with God, not only to lay down his life, to give up his life for us, but to, 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 to take it back up to be raised from the dead. The resurrection really is our ultimate proof of who Jesus was. And by the way, before we move on, there is one more thing in verse 6 that I want to point out to you. In verse 6 it says again, when God brings His firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. When, when Christ came, and this, this verse is, is quoting Jesus, it says, let all the angels worship Him. Angels don't worship people. In fact, when people and angels are, are together, it's people that are on their faces before the angels. Angels only worship God. They bow down only to God. And it says that the angels worshipped Him. So the first and, and really most important reason that Jesus has the authority and that He's superior to everyone and everything else is because of His relationship, because He is one with God. But let me give you some other things that it says here in verse 3 and in some of the other verses. In verse 3, it tells us that Jesus sustains all things by His powerful Word. I mean, think about that for a minute. What other religious leader would make a claim like that? Would, would Buddha make a claim? Would Muhammad? Would Gandhi? Would any religious leader make the claim that they sustain all things by the power of their word? Well, Jesus does. In fact, in John's gospel, John chapter 1, it begins by, by saying, In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now entire volumes have been written about this Greek word logos that is translated as Word. And we don't have time to get into all that and that's far above what we're fully capable of understanding for most of us. But the point is this, that God communicates His message through Jesus and it's the Word of Jesus that sustains everything. Verse 3 also tells us, that and, and it's repeated again later at the end of the chapter, uh, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Once Jesus completed his mission, once he gave his life for us, it says that, that, that he then returned to be in the presence of his Father and that he sat down at the right hand of God. That's a powerful statement about Jesus and, and who He was. It's a statement about His authority and about His, again, His oneness with the Father. But then in, in verse 8, it tells us that His throne will last forever. His throne will last forever. Notice it says that it's written specifically here about the Son, Verse 8, but about the Son, it says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. See, Jesus' kingdom is one that will last. Jed read this a moment ago. By the way, I noticed your arms weren't, almost weren't long enough there, Jed, when you were reading that a moment ago. But it does say, it talks about this. It says, uh, they will all perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. So this idea that, that the throne of Jesus, it just continues to last forever. Jesus created everything. We see that in verse 10. I think we saw it earlier in the chapter as well. He created everything, but nothing will last 
other than his throne. Now here's the remarkable thing about all of this. We can talk about all these things um, that, that cause Jesus to be superior, that, that give us reason to say that Christ is exalted and superior to anything and anyone else. The remarkable thing to me is that this God, this Jesus, who is so far superior to anyone and anything else, actually wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship with you. Jesus gave his life for you. It's remarkable enough that he could do that for us, that he had the authority to do that for us. It's even more remarkable that he would do that for us. That Jesus would lay down his life for us. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I had people in my life that I looked up to that were kind of larger than life. They were bigger, they were stronger, uh, both in my mind and in reality. And as a kid, uh, always being a, a basketball fan, I remember going to basketball games and I had certain basketball players. These guys were giants, right? I just looked up to them. They were, they were massive. Uh, I, just, I was in awe of who they were. And we used to get tickets uh, occasionally when I was a kid to sit on the floor level uh, of the Mavericks games. And I was at a Mavericks game one time and I happened to be down on the floor. I don't remember if, we, if I was going for concessions or we were coming in or whatever, but the team was coming by. I just remember looking up at these giant players and just thinking, oh my goodness, this is amazing. How remarkable would it have been for me as a 10, 11-year-old kid or whatever it was, if one of those players that was so exalted in my mind had stopped and taken a personal interest in me and said, hey, I want to get to know you, I want to be your friend, I want to have a relationship with you. It probably would freak me out, quite honestly. I wouldn't have known what to do. And of course, that doesn't happen. That's, that's not their purpose. That's not what they're there for. But let me tell you something. As amazing as, as those professional athletes were, they weren't nearly as big, they weren't nearly as powerful as Jesus is. And yet this Jesus who is so far exalted wants a relationship with me, wants a relationship with you. That's incredible. And so today as we come to the conclusion of our, our, our message and get ready to wrap up our service, I want to extend an invitation to you to respond in faith by giving your heart to Christ, if you've not done that before. Last Sunday, we extended that same invitation and several of you responded and let us know that you made that decision to trust in Christ for the first time, in some cases to rededicate your life to the Lord. I just want to lead you through that same prayer. And so if you don't know for sure that you have come to a point of, of giving your heart and your life to Christ, I just want you to pray a prayer like this. We're even going to put the words on the screen to help you to know what to pray. But let's just bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And if you want to pray, just pray along with these words that you see on the screen now. Jesus, I'm amazed that you care about me. I believe that you gave your life on the cross for me. Right now I turn away from my sin and I turn to you in complete trust. I believe you died for me and rose on the third day. And I give my heart to you from this day forward. In your name I pray. Amen. If today for the first time you prayed that prayer to invite Christ into your life, we want to come alongside you. We want to celebrate with you, first of all. You know, the Bible says that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. That means that if you made that decision, 
in the presence of God right now, there is rejoicing in heaven. But we want to rejoice with you too. We want to know about it. The Bible tells us that when we give our lives to Christ, that we become a new creation in Him, that the old is gone and the new has come. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to let us know about that decision that you made to become a new creation by texting the word NEW to the number on your screen. Just text that word to us so we can follow up and and be able to understand a little bit more about the decision that you're making and to be able to celebrate with you what God is doing. See, God's work continues on, guys. He's continuing to do His thing. Um, Even though we're not able to be together, even though we're not able to do some of the normal things, God, I believe, is working through the situation that we're in. He's drawing hearts to Himself. He's doing something fantastic. And it's exciting to be a part of that. And we just want to be able to celebrate with you as you made that decision to trust in Christ as well. Now, before Stephen comes to uh, prepare to share with us a little bit more about how we can pray, uh, I just again want to extend uh, an invitation to you uh, to support the work that God is doing through Gateway. You can uh, you can do it through our online bulletin. There's a, a link already in there. You can go to gatewayonline.org slash give. Uh, but just thank you for the support that allows us to continue doing the, the ministry that God has called us to do and that we're excited to see Him do.